0: Good evening. Good evening. I trust you're ready to take another look at the Gospel of Luke, getting ready to start digging into the text of the Gospel in the next few weeks and months. Last Sunday night, we took some time to do some comparative uh, study on the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The first three of the New Testament are called the synoptic gospels. They are looking at uh, the gospel presentation from some parallel uh, viewpoints, synoptic, same view. Uh, Because John is so different, that's why the first three uh, gained that name. And so Luke is one of the synoptic gospels. You will find some similarities between Luke and John. Matthew and Mark and uh, there is a discussion about uh, whether Mark or Luke wrote first or who might have been using somebody else's material and I really don't think it it is a big uh, point for us to take any time on you can read material about it Uh, all three books are inspired Amen? amen and uh... There may be some benefit in knowing some things about order, but each one was written for a different purpose. Each one was different, written by a different man. Each one was written uh, to a different audience. Each one was written with a different emphasis. And so uh, we are looking tonight at some more details about the gospel according to Luke. As far as we know, Luke was a Gentile. We are uh, not We can't prove it, but when Paul referred to a number of people in Colossians chapter 4, he referred to those who were Jews by saying those who were of the circumcision. And then later on, he referred to some other people, Epaphras and uh, some other Greek names, and he included Luke there. If Luke is a Gentile, and I think he was, that would make Luke the only Gentile that we know of to write any of the scriptures. And he wrote more verses, more content, more volume than all of Paul's epistles put together. That's pretty significant. If you have sat down on, uh, in, in an evening or sometime to read through the Gospel of Luke or the Book of Acts, you know they're not a quick read. It takes a while to get through them. A lot of material there. According to the early church fathers, Eusebius and the historian Jerome and others, they believe that he was from the city of Antioch, which is an interesting connection because that obviously was a key church from which Paul went out to ministry and would explain perhaps where Paul and Luke originally connected and how Luke may have become a part of Paul's missionary team uh, later on in the book of Acts, probably starting in chapter 16. Uh, There's so much of the book of Acts centers on the ministry of this church of Antioch and Paul and Barnabas going out from there. And we know from the book of Acts that Luke was, if not a constant companion of Paul, he certainly was a very frequent companion of Paul, from Acts 16 all the way to very close to the end of Paul's life. If you take your Bible, I I know we're not, uh, it's not all of this tonight is in the a gospel of Luke if you look at second timothy tonight chapter 4 and verse 11 i start with verse 9 make every effort to come to me soon for demas having loved this present world demas is one of the ones who was with him and was commended back in colossians but has changed here He has loved the present world, has deserted me, and gone to Thessalonica Crescens, has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. And uh, we believe here in 2 Timothy that Paul was very close to the end of his life, probably close to the time of his martyrdom. And so Luke was a longtime companion uh, and no doubt uh, had ministry to Paul as a physician. I find it interesting that Paul had a physician who traveled with him, and yet Paul did have some physical ailments that were beyond Luke's help. The doctors don't have all the answers, never have, never will. Only redemption has the answers to your ultimate health needs. We have referred several times to the fact that Luke was a physician. Paul calls him that in the book of Colossians. And that also comes out in the Gospel of Luke. But I'll come back to that uh, in a little while. We'll look at some of his references to physical healing and a particular interest in, apparently, in medical things in the book of Luke. The book of Luke uh, opens up with an introduction, and I'm going to read that now. We'll look at it in more detail at the end of the hour. Inasmuch as as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting to me as well having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. Period. End of sentence. He'd been hanging out with Paul too long. (laughs) Luke's style... Uh, from the very first part of his gospel, is one of the most well-written, uh, most polished letters, uh, books, of the New Testament. The The Greek uh, grammar and style is very uh, high. It's indicative of Luke's level of training and education. The meticulous detail that Luke goes into as a historian has helped identify uh, a great many of the events and locations that he talks about. Uh, I just mentioned this here in the last couple of days to someone. Uh, in the book of Acts, we mentioned this when we were going through Acts, Luke's description of the this, of this storm that Paul was in when they were trying to save the ship is one of the most complete accounts of maritime history from the first century of how they tried to save a ship in a storm. And the military... And uh, um, uh, naval historians study Luke in the book of Acts because it's such an accurate and amazing description of what they were doing on that ship. So Luke is a, a keen observer of historical detail. In fact, his record of the nativity in the first two chapters is the fullest account of the nativity in all of the gospel records. It is also a very polished literary piece in the birth narratives. The birth narratives include a series of praise psalms and also give us the unusual circumstances surrounding the birth of John the Baptist, the Annunciation to Mary, the manger, the shepherds, and the revelation through Simeon and Anna that we don't find in other Gospels. And by the way, our schedule for the next few weeks is um, Obviously, this is October. Christmas is coming in a few weeks, whether you're aware of it or not. I don't know how many shopping days that but is. I'm I'm more interested in how many snow-shoveling days that is until Christmas, you know, myself. But we are going to, for the next couple or few weeks, we're going to skip the birth narratives of Luke and save those for November and December, and a little bit more timely, fitting those into uh, the season when we're thinking about the nativity. So starting next week, we're going to jump to uh, the end of the nativity section and start in uh, the early preparation of Christ's life for ministry. Um, As we also think more about the Gospel of Luke in some general terms, it appears that Luke was writing to Gentiles. He was targeting a Gentile readership, a Gentile audience. And we we recognize that for several reasons. I want you to look with me in, in some things at the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4 and verse 31. There's something that Luke did with locations in the book of Luke that he would not have done if he had been writing to a Jewish audience. Notice Luke 4, verse 31. He refers to Christ coming down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee. And the Jews would say, duh. Why would he include that? Why would he tell Jews that Capernaum was a city? Everybody knew that. That points to the fact that his audience doesn't know where Capernaum is. They're not as familiar with the geography Of Israel. He's referring, he's writing to a Gentile audience. Over toward the end of the book, if you look in chapter 23, verse 50 and 51. And a man named Joseph, who was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, he had not consented to their plan and action, a man from Arimathea, a city of the Jews. Well, everybody. Knew that Arimathea was a city of the Jews. Unless maybe you didn't live in Israel, and you might not know that. Look over one more time at the next chapter, in chapter 24 and verse 13. And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which is about seven miles from Jerusalem. Now, if he was writing to Jews who traveled every year to Jerusalem three times a year from all over the land of Israel, do you think they all knew where Emmaus was? I suspect they did. The fact that he adds the details uh, of these well-known locations in Israel is one indication that he's writing to a Jewish audience. He has to explain the geography of Israel. There's a second reason why we believe it was written to a Gentile audience, and that is that Luke uses Greek terms instead of Hebrew names for some places. Instead of calling the place of the crucifixion Golgotha, the Hebrew word, he uses the Greek word Calvary in Luke 23 and 33. The other gospel writers use the Semitic form of terms such as Abba for Father, Rabbi, for teacher, and Hosanna, in praise passages. But Luke either omits these Hebrew words completely or uses Greek equivalents instead of the Hebrew words. Why? He's writing to a Gentile audience. He's using the Greek of the Gentile world. When A third reason we think Luke was writing to a Gentile audience, is that whenever Luke quoted the Old Testament, which he did not do as much as Matthew, and whenever he's referring to Old Testament passages, he almost always uses what we call the Septuagint, which was a Greek translation of the Old Testament. I think most of you are familiar with that, but if you're not, um, after Alexander the Great conquered the Mediterranean world 300 years before Christ a great many Jewish people switched over to speaking and writing Greek. And over a period of time, they, they, they diminished in their ability to use the Hebrew Old Testament. So a group of Greek scholars got together, Jewish scholars who knew Greek, and they translated the Old Testament into Greek to keep it up to date for the people. Just like we have English translations coming out from time to time to keep it up up to date, right? So that Greek Bible is actually what many of the Dead Sea Scrolls included, texts from the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Well, Luke quotes from the Greek Old Testament instead of the Hebrew Old Testament. That's an indication that his audience is more more familiar with Greek than with Hebrew. And then there's also the general observation that more than the other gospel writers, Luke seemed to highlight the universal scope of the gospel ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. He often highlights the fact that Jesus ministered to Samaritans, um, to others who were from other parts of uh, the empire besides just the Jews. Some people have accused or, or doubted that Luke wrote these books, saying that if, if Luke was a companion of Paul and Luke had written these books, then Luke's vocabulary would be a lot more like Paul. You know, he'd use all those $50 words that Paul used, you know, propitiation and righteousness and justification and all the theological terminology. We don't find that kind of theological terminology in the Gospel of Luke. And I don't think that's because it wasn't written by Luke. I think it's because Luke wasn't writing a theological treatise. Paul was writing the book of Romans as a theological treatise on the doctrine of salvation. Luke was not. He was writing about the Savior who brought that salvation. He was writing about the plan of God who brought the Messiah to the people. Luke was not expounding church doctrine like Paul was. But I think we can also say that it's very clear that there's absolutely nothing in the gospel of Luke that contradicts any of Paul's theology. It all fits together perfectly. There's no contradiction. So I think that's an argument that has no no basis in fact or any importance in consideration. Well, let's take a look at some more things in the Gospel of Luke that seem to be characteristic of him and that he seems to include more than others. Let's look at some references to miracles of healing and physical uh, kinds of restoration. In chapter 4 of the Gospel of Luke, verse 38, and we're just going to go through some of these. Uh, In Luke 4, verse 38... He got up, this is referring to Christ, ministering in the town of Capernaum. Christ got up and left the synagogue and entered Simon's home. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked him to help her. And standing over her, he rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately got up and waited on them. That is more detail than we have in the other Gospels. The other Gospels tell us about uh, Christ healing Peter's mother-in-law, but it's, it's a briefer account. This one has more details on the medical uh, side. And by the way, some have said, well, well Luke doesn't have a lot of, of complicated medical terminology in it. So how do we know he was really a doctor? Well, when you go back and read the history of medicine, the vocabulary of first century physicians was far smaller than the vocabulary of current doctors. Praise God you'd never get through the Gospel of Luke. if you had to read all those medical terms for everything, it'd be like reading a textbook the this the The medicine practiced in the first century was a simpler kind of medicine than than we have today. So chapter five, notice that he is. Dealing many times with crowds, and Luke often refers to the crowds that come, which is consistent with the other gospel writers. Luke 5.15, but the news about him was spreading even farther, and large crowds were gathering to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus himself would often slip away. And pray. One day he was teaching, and there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. He doesn't say how many, does he? What a statement. The power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. How many times I wonder, as Luke heard the testimony of these accounts, did he think, wow, wouldn't that be wonderful to be able to heal people? as a doctor. Verse 18, some men were carrying on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were trying to bring him in and set him down in front. We all know the story. They tore a hole in the roof and let him down through the roof on a stretcher. I don't know if they ever repaired that roof or not. <laughs> what are you guys doing up there? We'd be more upset about the roof instead of praising God for the man being healed. Right? No, we would We No, no, Pastor, we'd, we'd, we'd be praising the Lord. Chapter 6, verse 17, Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place, and there was a large crowd of his disciples and a great throng of people. By the way, do you, do you see that phrase there, a large crowd of his disciples? That's more than 12. It's a lot more than 12. Um, one of the things that you're going to see as you read through the book of Luke, there's a lot about discipleship in the book of Luke. It is a study on the principles of discipleship. There was also a great throng of people from all Judea and Jerusalem, and now notice this, the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon. I don't know if those were Jews from Tyre or Tyrones from Tyre. I don't know if these were Sidonians from Sidon Sidon, or if these were Jews from Sidon, but there's people here from a foreign country. It may be a reference to Gentiles. They had come to hear him, in verse 18, and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were being cured. Now, I know that all of the Gospels include healings and references to healings. But Luke just does it over and over and over again. In chapter 7, he refers to the resurrection of the widow of Nain, and there was great fear that came upon the people. In chapter 8, he refers to the woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years. And then later in chapter 8, he refers to another resurrection. In chapter 13, let's look at this one. This is interesting. In chapter 13, verse 11... Starting in 10, he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and there was a woman who for 18 years had had a sickness caused by a spirit. And she was bent double and could not straighten up at all. 18 years living like that. Can you imagine how that affected her life? When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your sickness. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made erect again and began glorifying God. Wow. Amazing. Amazing healing capacity. But the synagogue officials indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath began to say to the crowd in response just imagine this oh there are 6 days in which work should be done so come during them and get healed and do not get healed on the Sabbath That's compassion right Instead of praising God they ha- they have just seen a miracle They've just seen a miracle and they're complaining In chapter 17, Luke gives us the account of the ten lepers who are healed from their leprosy by speaking. This is one of the uh, passages that points out the faith of a Gentile, uh, or at least a non Jew. Chapter 17, verse 12. Notice where he is in verse 11. He was on the way to Jerusalem. He's passing between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, ten leprous men, unclean, undesirable outcasts of society. They stood at a distance, met Jesus, and they raised their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, Have mercy on us. And this is one case where Jesus evidently did not go over and touch them. Notice what he does. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priest. He didn't even say be healed. He just said, Go and show yourself to the priest, which was the Old Testament requirement for someone who was being healed from leprosy. And so they went, and as they were going, they were cleansed. By his word, he cleansed them. Luke noticed that in this account. I'm sure Luke would love to have had the ability to do that, to help people in that way. And of course, then in verse 15, one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him. This man is truly worshiping and giving thanks. And he was a Samaritan. Despised, rejected, a leper, unclean, a Samaritan. Luke points it out. Luke is one of the ones that also records that on the night in which Christ was betrayed, one of the disciples took out his sword, and I'm glad he wasn't fighting for me, he lopped off the ear of the servant of the high priest. Luke records that Christ reached out and touched the man's ear and and healed it. Luke notices uh, in his account, gives us many of these occasions. Luke also, along with healing and so on, he often mentions about Christ's ministry to outcasts. He refers to Jesus' um, compassion for Gentiles, for Samaritans, More than most of the other writers, he mentions Jesus' compassion on women. He includes Jesus' compassion on children. He mentions Jesus' ministry to tax collectors and sinners, and to others regarded as outcasts, like the lepers we just saw in John 17. It's interesting, in the Gospel of Luke, every time Luke mentions a tax collector, it's in a positive context. Someone's responding by faith to Christ. From the beginning of Christ's public ministry in chapter 4 all the way to the final words of Christ on the cross when he promised eternal life to the thief on the cross, Luke tended to highlight the fact that Christ's ministry reached to the outcasts of society. How typical for a doctor who has a compassionate heart for people. And it doesn't matter who they are. A doctor with the true spirit of medical treatment for people isn't looking at who the person is and, and what's wrong. He's, there's a person in need, they're going to go help. That's the spirit of a doctor. Luke gives a a high profile to women. This is particularly significant in first century literature. It's unusual in um, secular writings for this kind of prominence to be given to women, especially prominence in a positive light where the ministry and influence of women is commended. I, I I scratch my head in wonder and also chafe in irritation when I hear the women's lib speakers putting down God and Christianity and then talking about women's rights. Where do they think they got those rights from? They don't know their history. If it weren't for the Bible and Christianity, women, and I'm not saying there aren't times when there's abuse, and 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 not every not everything is just and righteous in this society. But where do they think our culture would be without the Bible? God forbid. We'd still be back in the the ancient Near East, where women were property. Do they want that? You get rid of God in the Bible, that's where you're going to end up. Maybe not in one year, maybe not in two years, but eventually. where you're going to end up. It's interesting that as Luke, um, right, especially in the the, um, birth narratives and in the resurrection narratives, he gives uh, a lot of account to the women. He has the the longest section in chapters 1 and 2 about Elizabeth and Mary. He has... Elizabeth's praise to the Lord. He has Mary's praise to the Lord. He has Anna's praise to the Lord, where these women are major characters in these events. He has, uh, of of course, Elizabeth and Mary are women of faith and godly character. Um, It's also interesting to me what he does in the gospel, uh, in the resurrection account. Let's look over at Luke chapter uh, 23. We're going to read a little section here at the end of chapter 23, beginning with verse 26, referring to um, when Christ was carrying his cross. Verse 26 of Luke 23, When they led him away, they seized a man, Simon of Cyrene, coming in from the country and placed on him the cross to carry behind Jesus. And following him was a large crowd of the people and the women who were mourning and lamenting him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bore, and the breast that never nursed. Then they will say, They will begin to say, To the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the tree is green, what will happen? when it is dry. Guard out for your own hearts the day of judgment is coming. Don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. Verse 32, two others also who were criminals were being led away to be put to death with him. Um, Now notice down in verse 49. The crowd is standing around while he's on the cross, verse 49, and all of his acquaintances and the women who were with him from Galilee, who were who accompanied him from Galilee, were standing at a distance seeing these things. There was a group of faithful women disciples who followed Christ's ministry actively for much of the time he was on this earth. And they are there. We know Mary was there, and there was probably a significant number of women. They're mentioned again um, here as we go through. Verse 50, And a man named Joseph, who was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, he had not consented to their plan and action. A man from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who was waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus." And he took it down and wrapped it in a linen cloth and laid him in a tomb cut into the rock where no one had ever lain. It was the preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. That's an explanation for the Gentile readers. Now the women who had come with him out of Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and perfumes, and on the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week at early dawn they came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they have prepared." Sometimes we read the gospel resurrection accounts on Easter Sunday morning and we try to figure out, well, were there two women or four or five or six or whatever? There could well have been a crowd. Certain ones are mentioned in some of the texts, but there could have been a significant number of women who were there. They were faithful, godly women, and he identifies them as ones who had followed him ever since he had ministered in in Galilee. So we are familiar with this resurrection account, verse 10. Now, they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James. Also, the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. So these women are acknowledged as having been there at the resurrection. at at the empty tomb. Now, he mentions Joanna in verse 10, which is an interesting reference. Um, It is another passage of Scripture uh, where we find out that Joanna was the wife of Herod's steward. All right, look back at chapter 8. Joanna. Look chapter 8. This is a reference back to when some of these women were with his ministry. Uh, Soon afterward, Luke 8, 1, soon afterward he began going around from one city to and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God, referring to Christ's ministry, the twelve were with him. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses, Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven devils had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who were contributing to their support out of their private means." Which I bring that up because it's interesting that Luke says some things about Herod in his dealings with Christ and his interest in Christ as a person that we don't find in the other Gospels. How did Luke know that? I think Joanna was probably one of the people he interviewed. She had an inside look at Herod's... Palace at Herod's life. And uh, she was a faithful follower of the Lord Jesus Christ from an earlier time. This is one of the people that um, just one of the people that he um, met and interviewed. So let's go to the early verses of the Gospel of Luke and spend a few minutes. <clears> there. <throat> In chapter 1, these first four verses, which I read earlier, tell us that Luke uh, is already aware that others have undertaken to compile various accounts of the things accomplished among us, a general reference to the ministry of Christ and the work of the early church. Now, we don't have a lot of remaining uh, writings from other gospel accounts from the early centuries. Uh, We know there were some. But uh, Luke seems to be aware that there were others who had set down writings. Maybe some of the apostles uh, had written personal accounts, personal uh, journals, uh, journal kind of entries, their own uh, records of early things. Um, perhaps there were some other Jewish uh, historian, uh, historians or people interested in history who had written some of these things down. Um, we don't know exactly who he's referring to, but he acknowledges that there are others who have set down the writings concerning Christ's ministry and the early church. But Luke is, he wants more information. He has in his heart, and I think the Lord put it there, a desire to do something more than that. He acknowledges that these uh, accounts in verse 2 were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, but it seemed fitting to him, having investigated things, it seemed fitting to him to write it down himself in a complete account, a more complete account. And So, so God has put in Luke's heart a desire for an accurate, careful, more complete record So Luke is proposing to set in order these things. Notice uh, that phrase, to compile an account or to set in order these things. Now, let me say a word about the chronology of the Gospels. If, If you read the Gospels and think you're reading everything in exactly the order that it occurred, you're going to get confused. Because it's not all in chronological order. A lot of it is, but once in a while each of the gospel writers will kind of stop and and give you a flashback or or while he's mentioning this he also mentions something else that happened later earlier near then near that place it's not all strictly chronological okay uh, in fact, Luke has a section that begins at the end of chapter 9, verse 51, and goes for 10 chapters. And, and in chapter 9, verse 51, he indicates that Jesus is setting his face to Jerusalem. And a lot of Bibles will have a heading there at that verse that says, Jesus journeys toward Jerusalem. He set his face like a flint and he's headed for Jerusalem to the cross. And then it talks about his ministry across the River of Jordan. It talks about ministry up in Galilee. And it's like, what? Some of it doesn't make sense if it's supposed to be a strict chronology. But it it is a thematic approach in some of the sections that's not strictly chronological. Now, some of it is very chronological. But what isn't chronological has... uh, a logical sense to it. It's there for a reason. It might be a a parable that's grouped with some other parables. Jesus didn't necessarily give them all at the same time, but they might be recorded together. Okay, that kind of a thing. So, he's aware of many others who have written, but he desires to set these things down in an order. Uh, Notice it's at the end of verse 1, he says, the things that have been accomplished among us. Is, he actually uses the word things that have been fulfilled among us. And I think he's referring to Old Testament prophecies. He, he's not just saying, I want you to know what happened. He's saying, I want you to know what God has done to fulfill the promises he has made. He literally uses the word fulfilled here and when he says, among us, I think he, I don't think he means just himself and whoever he's with when he's writing. I think he's talking about his generation. He wants his generation to have a record of the fulfillment of God's plan of salvation through Jesus Christ. I mentioned last week the eyewitnesses, and he mentions them here in verse 1. Uh, these accounts have been handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. How did Luke meet some of these people? I want you to go with me over to Luke chapter, uh, excuse me, Acts chapter 21, the book of Acts chapter 21. I said last week, if, if you weren't here, let me repeat this. I said last week that as far as we know, Luke himself never met the Lord Jesus Christ during his earthly ministry. Uh, There's no indication that he did. Uh, He seems to be relying on eyewitness accounts for his book. Uh, He never says, he never puts himself in a context where he himself heard. Uh, He does not appear until as far as we know until Acts chapter 16 in the middle of Paul's ministry in Turkey Asia Minor and uh, he probably he probably got saved in one of the churches during Paul's early ministry and then later joined Paul's ministry so this then becomes a possibility of when he met some of these people in Acts chapter 21 notice verse 15 After these days, we got ready and started on our way up to Jerusalem. You see the word we in verse 15? That includes Luke. As you read the book of Acts, those of you that have studied it are familiar, there are some sections that are called the we sections, not W-E-E meaning little, but the W-E, we, the sections where Luke uses the pronoun we, indicating that he was there with Paul. In some of the sections, he says Paul did this and saw Paul and Silas and Paul and Barnabas and Paul and whoever did this and that and the other thing, and there's no we in there. But here, Luke is with Paul. After these days, we got ready, started on our way up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea also came with us, taking us to Manassas of Cyprus, a disciple of standing with whom we were to lodge. After we arrived in Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. He's in Jerusalem with Paul. And the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. Now, I don't know who all the elders of the church at Jerusalem were at that time, but if any of the apostles were still in Jerusalem, they probably would have been included. And if these were the elders, these would have been some of the older people in the church at Jerusalem, and the, many of them would have been eyewitnesses of the ministry of Jesus Christ. Here he is in Jerusalem with the church, with the apostles and elders. Now Luke has an opportunity. If he's never met some of these people before, he has met them now. But I also want you to remember that according to Acts chapter 8 and 9, Many of the eyewitness people who saw Jesus in his ministry fled from Israel. They fled from Judea in Acts 8 in the persecution under Saul, and they scattered all over the Roman Empire. And so you could meet Jews who had gotten saved in many, many cities of the Roman Empire and ask them questions about what they heard Jesus say. There were eyewitnesses in many places. All right? It's not limited just... To Jerusalem, but this is one time and one place where he could have met the brethren uh, and many of them and asked his questions. And it's this, of course, it's this visit to Jerusalem that lands Paul into trouble. And he ends up getting saved by the Romans from an angry mob of Jews who are trying to kill him. And he ends up being the one arrested and in jail in two years for two years down in Caesarea, down by the Mediterranean coast. So Luke is traveling with Paul, and Paul's in jail. Two years. What are you going to do, Luke? Hey, I've always wanted to travel through the land of Israel. Now's my opportunity. I've always wanted to look up some of those people who knew Jesus. I'm going to start walking and asking questions. And I think that's what he did during this time when Paul was at Caesarea. And he met various people in many places. And as he compiled their testimonies, no doubt he was writing down notes, writing down the accounts, comparing what one person said and what another person said and where Jesus was here and there. And maybe that's why some of this in the Gospel of Luke is not strictly chronological is because he didn't meet all the people in chronological order. He was hitting the highlights of what he knew about who Christ was. Notice back in the introduction to the book of Luke in the first four verses there, that in verse 3 he says, it seemed fitting to me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning. Having investigated everything carefully, having traced it out, having done painstaking investigation, having applied his ability to make medical observations to an ability to make historical observations and observations about people and places and things. He's very careful with details, and he's making these records and writing things out. Luke, probably more than anyone else in the early church, had not only the ability but the opportunity to write this book. And he did. And he purposely was trying to write a careful, careful account. He wrote it for Theophilus. We don't know who Theophilus was. Theos is God. Philos is love. The man was named Theophilus, the lover of God, whether that's a reference to a Christian who loves God or some secular uh, Roman official who had the name Loves God. Um, Whether this is a nickname or a real name, we don't know. Maybe someday historians will uncover some information. But he seems to be writing to this person. But at the same time, we know this is not a private letter to this person. It is a It is a gospel written for everyone to read. This is more, this is not the address of a letter. This is more like the dedication of a book that we would find in the blurb of a book. It's an acknowledgement and a record. Uh, And by the way, this kind of an historic introduction to a book was very common in the Greek world to write a little introduction to your book. His purpose in verse 4 says, "...so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught." Evidently, this man has already been instructed in apostolic doctrine. This man has already heard the gospel and evidently trusted Christ. But he wants him to know the exact truth. He wants him to know with certainty the specific claims of Jesus' authority, the specific claims of these accounts that are reliable and authoritative. Evidently, Luke had a sense that he was writing God's truth. I can't prove that, but it just seems to me that Luke is very much aware that he's being used of the Lord to write Scripture. He was convinced that what he was writing had an accuracy and reliability. He was putting his reputation on it. He's saying, I have carefully researched this information. I have talked to the people who were there, and this is what they have told me. If any of you have ever been in a court of law and someone comes to the stand as a witness, if the lawyers are sharp, one of the questions that one of the lawyers will ask that person is, were you there? Yes or no? Did you see? Well, no, I, but, but so-and-so said, did you know? No. Get rid of that witness. He's not a witness. He's a hearsay witness. And Luke is saying, there are no hearsay witnesses that I have talked to in this account. What you hold in your hands is the reliable, authoritative, inspired, accurate record of who Jesus is. Luke believed it with all of his heart, and he shares it with us to enrich us and to encourage us to look at the Son of Man, the God who became man, the man who came to seek and to save that which was lost, the man who came to die on the cross, the man who came to demonstrate a purity of heart and character, a compassionate heart toward man, a man of justice, a man of righteousness, a man of truth, a man of humility, A man who, to the Greek audience, fulfilled every admirable trait of the Greek culture, but without the sin and despicable character of the human heart. That's what Luke is presenting to his Gentile audience. A perfect, sinless, pure son of man who came to seek and to save that which was lost. To give his life a ransom on the cross for many. What a great gospel. What a great God we serve. I trust that as you dig into the gospel of Luke, it will be an encouragement to you and an enrichment to your heart. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, We marvel that we have in our hands a copy of a book that was written 2,000 years ago. You have kept it, preserved it from tyrants, from the devil, from opposition, from foes of every kind through many, many centuries of history. And you have given us, almost everyone in this room, probably carried a copy in tonight. We probably have several copies at home. We have copies on our phone and on our computer. It's at our fingertips. Father, I pray that you will help us to be diligent, to study it, to put it in our mind, in our thoughts, in our attitudes, in our words, in our actions, that we might be a reflection as well of the Son of Man. We pray that you would work through your word for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.